This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Office of Personnel Management's taking over the Chief Human Capital Officers Council again. The Trump administration moved some of the functions of the council to the General Services Administration when it tried to merge OPM into GSA. GovExec reports OPM Director Kieran Ahuja promises to, quote, revitalize the Chico Council. The Department of Veterans Affairs and the American Federation of Government Employees will reopen negotiations on a new collective bargaining agreement. An agreement between the agency and the union resets current relations to a contract the two sides signed in 2011. Federal Times reports the agreement sets out 12 items the VA and AFGE will negotiate. Senate Armed Services Committee is finishing its work on its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. The committee did most of its work behind closed doors again this year. Military Times reports the House Armed Services Committee will start work on its version next week. The Biden administration could offer bounties of up to $10 million to people who identify ransomware perpetrators. It's also looking at how it might hack back at the bad guys. Ari Schwartz is managing director of cybersecurity services at Venable. He's former special assistant to the president and senior director for cybersecurity. Ari, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Is this a major revolution in the way that the federal government looks at and tries to fight ransomware? Or is this kind of an evolution into new things that the government hasn't done before, but that build on things that it has? I actually think we're headed towards a revolution in this space. I mean, uh, we've, we've, they've, there's been this discussion of uh, looking at some of the ransomware perpetrators as, as criminals and as terrorists in this space and treating them like terrorists. And uh, I think that would be a true revolution. What would make that effective and what would make attribution effective in order to be able to pin down for sure, number one, we know these are the people who did it, and number two, we know these are the people who turned us on to them so we can reward them? Well, I think part of it is being able to go and get the money and th that's been given and get it back um, or stop people from needing to pay altogether by being able to crack uh, ransomware from the beginning, uh, but and, and then there's the, the, just the defensive side as well of uh, stopping ransomware attacks uh, by doing better defense. Um, I think all those working on all three of those things at the same time, they're all areas that where there has been some work before, but we've certainly seen a lot big uh, move in the direction of uh, giving more, much more advice in that area and a lot more support for agencies and organizations that get hit. The terminology that you used a moment ago is interesting to me, Ari, because if we start thinking about this and dealing with it the same way that we would deal with terrorism, that implies that this is a social or cultural problem and not a technology problem, and so we're going to think about it in a social and cultural way. Am I on the right track? I think that's exactly right. The bad guys are going to continue to move the technology around and continue to find holes in the technology in order to, but, but it's the technique that they're using and the fact that they're being harbored in certain states uh, that are allowing them to, uh, to, to stay there in those countries So uh, without the U.S. being able to extradite them so, or, or bring cases against them. So I think that's where uh, the, the social cultural side comes in. How does that 
what's the implication for that then in how we think about establishing defenses in the first place so the bad guys can't get in and plant the ransomware? Well, it's uh, part of it is that NIST just put out a, uh, they have it in draft now, but it's available where they have a really detailed set of practices that agencies can use to protect themselves. But most of it, mostly it says, do all the basics that you need to do, right? It, it, it used to be that we would tell people to do three or four things specifically for ransomware. And there still are, uh, they have, you know, their fact sheets, both at DHS and at NIST to, that highlight uh, what agencies should do as the top, top areas to protect themselves. But really, you need to go th even deeper than that at this point and do all of the, the major controls and then just prioritize those others. What does this mean potentially for diplomatic efforts? Chris Painter's been on the program a number of times uh, who dealt with these issues during the Obama administration at the State Department from a cyber diplomacy issue. It strikes me that that will become an important element here too because not all of these organizations are nation states. Some of them operate maybe enabled by nation states, but but there are a lot of nuances here, right? That's right. I mean, we have seen some that do seem to be tied more directly to nation states, and obviously that, that's a you have to take a different type of action there. There are some that are just being harbored by where the nations they're harboring, nation state is harboring them and not allowing us to go get them. So I think there's uh, two different types of diplomacy there that is needed, but both of them uh, include trying to get allies together and work together with allies um, in order to put pressure onto those other countries. I want to pull back more broadly. The, the Obama administration obviously uh, dealt with and uh, cyber issues and made cyber issues uh, a priority. The Trump administration did the same. This administration has really turbocharged its response to cyber, and, and some of that is because of the recommendations of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and legislative mandates that followed, but some of it is just the, the administration saying, wow, this is really a big issue that's exploded. We need to deal with it. What does that say to you about what people should be thinking, both in government and in industry, uh, about their cyber postures and about the way they interact with the federal government regarding cyber and, and broader uh, tech security issues? I mean, I think part of it is the timing that things, right as the Biden administration was coming in, and just before and right, at, right after, we, there was this wave of attacks um, that hit supply chain issues, that hit uh, ransomware. We've seen uh, all sorts of different types of attacks that we expected uh, to increase, but all at the same time. And, and really, so I think that that is uh, why you're seeing this uh, major uh, push on the part of the Biden administration, including putting an announcement out that they're going to be doing a uh, August uh, event with CEOs around it, um, where, which I think uh, is probably a good timing in order to move forward their policies um, uh, in that way. We have less than a minute left, Ari. What do you expect to see come out of that event as far as activity from the government and the way that they cooperate with the private sector? Well, I, I think there needs to be that a, a kind of push that uh, where the government is willing to step up um, and put its recess, resources forward, but also from industry in order to make the kind of pledges that's needed uh, that they're going to be doing the defense that's necessary. Because it's not just that the we always talk about how much of the critical infrastructure is in private sector hands, which is important, but it's also just some of the basic blocking and tackling that's not being done by the private sector today that needs to be put in place. Ari Schwartz, thanks very much. As always, terrific to have you back. Thank you. Good to be here. Coming next, an agency merger that's dead in the water. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what one agency can do to build the federal workforce back. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Office of Personnel Management will take back control of the Chief Human Capital Officers Council. It's another nail in the coffin for the merger between OPM and the General Services Administration. Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. She's former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Labor Department. Terry, welcome. It's good to see you. What's going on here exactly? What is OPM going to do that it did before and then didn't do for a while and is now doing again? Well, Francis, uh, that's a great question, right? Some people would say that continuing to do the same things and expecting different results is crazy. Uh, but I really think this time is different. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we need to think differently about the most important asset that the government has, and that's its people. And, you know, our recently congressionally directed report on OPM strongly recommended that OPM use the Chico Council as a strategic partner to deal with all of the challenges in federal human capital management. And the Chicos are hungry to serve in this capacity. They have great ideas to share. So we have our fingers crossed. This could be tremendously motivational for the Chicos and transformational for the federal civil service if it's played well. And talking to the Chicos myself, what they have yearned for, regardless of the structure, is an OPM that provides them backup and provides them robust resources to be able to find the people they need and, and then share that information across their cohort. Is that what you see happening as a result of Kieran Ahuja standing up and saying, not only are we taking this back, we're going to make this, uh, uh, we're going to revitalize this, the Chico Council? I think you're right. I think that the initial signs are really positive. And if I were creating a short list for Director Hahuja, I think I'd start with three things. One is that they really would work collaboratively with the Chico Council to address these pressing issues. I mean, they have a, an urgent need to recruit and retain the next generation of federal work, workers. They've got to rebuild the federal HR uh, staff capacity. And so engaging the Chicos in promoting this kind of innovation and sharing promising practices is the first step. And then engaging the Chicos in policy development and review, and that happened as they were thinking about these return to office policies. The Chicos know what it's like on the ground, and so they can be both a formal and an informal uh, feedback channel on policies. And the third is that OPM and the Chico Council if they partner effectively, can join the other CXO councils in creating an integrated government HR strategy that gives all of the agencies the um, HR expertise and access to recruiting and talent that will help them accomplish their mission. Yeah, and what you're suggesting there, Terry, I think really is the nirvana that we would be looking for, those of us in and out of government that care about how the government operates. And that's all of those councils, all of those CXO councils working together, some type of inter-council collaboration that I don't know that we've ever seen on a formal basis before, have we? Not really, and I think that was one of the underlying ideas about why they wanted to move the Chico Council to GSA, because GSA has the administrative responsibility for all of the other councils. But I think for um, program and policy alignment, the Chico Council best fits with OPM. So now it's up to OPM and GSA to make sure that they do that effective integration, that they bring the Chico Council's HR expertise to the other CXO councils and really then 
approach the government management challenges in a very collaborative way. You're right about that what, being one of the original intents of moving the Chico Council to GSA because uh, that Margaret Weikert uh, talked about that uh, originally, that the other policy shops basically lived in GSA and those should be there too. Um, what do you believe would ensure that that collaboration happens? Is it just a matter of the administration officials that are responsible for it, driving it? Or there are there other things, are there informal things that the Chicos uh, uh, on their own or as a council should do to try to connect with the other councils? Well, um, you know, some of that was happening kind of offline during COVID as the Chico Council met independently. Uh, but I really do think if uh, Director Ahuja and the new Director of GSA, Administrator of GSA, uh, intentionally work this that there's real opportunity to bring them together. Um, you know, they have a new uh, executive director for the Chico Council. I think there's interest in um, elevating the participation of the council members in the policy role with OPM. And so as that happens and people start to believe it because they see it, um, I would expect real progress in that space. All right, this is playing out along the lines of what you and your colleagues at Napa released in that report that you talked about. What would be next according to the blueprint that you and your colleagues laid out, Terry? Well, one of the things that could happen uh, right away, we recommended that uh, Congress amend the Chico Council law to add a rotating vice chair from the Chico Council. I think the director of OPM could practice that even without a change in law. Um, and that would be a really positive thing so that the Chico Council would know that they're partners, not just information receivers. And the second thing that I would dearly love to have happen, and I think many of us who watch this space have recommended it for a long time, is that OPM could use the expertise on the Chico Council and the Chicos from other agencies who, who aren't represented on the council to form that cross-cutting task force that could go back in and examine all the human capital regulations and to identify the set of changes that would offer the greatest potential to improve the effectiveness of federal human capital management. Terry Gurton, thanks very much. Thanks for coming on. It's great to have you on the program. Francis, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Up next, the artificial intelligence race to the bottom, straight ahead on Government Matters, building upgrades to the Pentagon's AI game. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back. The Pentagon has more than 600 AI projects underway, but that doesn't signal a race necessarily for artificial intelligence as a part of great power competition. Paul Shari is vice president and director of studies at the Center for a New American Security. He's writing about debunking the AI arms race theory in War on the Rocks. Paul, I always appreciate how you make this stuff easy enough for even me to understand it. You lead this piece by writing, there is no AI arms race. Where did people like me who think that go wrong, Paul? Um, yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, it is, I wanted to put it out there because I do think that that's a, a popular conception. Um, we see militaries in the United States, in China, in Russia, investing in AI, and oftentimes people leap to this frame of, it's an arms race. 
uh, it's a bit pedantic, um, maybe a bit academic, but when we think about arms race, uh, generally scholars define that as a place where there is runaway defense spending between uh, countries that's beyond normal levels. So examples being the Anglo-German arms race in the early 20th century, the Cold War nuclear arms race. We don't see that with AI today. In fact, when you look at AI as an actual amount of spending, it's pretty small. It's a tiny fraction of the Defense Department's budget. So uh, senior leaders talk about AI a lot. It's, I hate to say it because I think it's important. It's a lot of hot air um, and we don't really see the investments following through. So is it an important area? Do we need to do more? Absolutely. Um, but we shouldn't get caught up in some of the, the hype and rhetoric about what's going on. What I like also about this piece, Paul, is that there's tremendous context here. You write AI in and of itself, AI is not a weapon. It's more like electricity, the internal combustion engine, or computer networks. What does that mean for the way that people in the Defense Department in particular, but the federal government more broadly, uh, for, what does that mean for how they should think about it? And what does it also mean for the way that Congress should think about it from an appropriations and authorization perspective, Paul? Right, so the frame of a general purpose technology means it's really an enabler for a wide variety of things. Um, I think computers are, are a great example here, as are electricity, for example. So how do we find ways to import that and adopt it really quickly? And I think what matters most here is AI is in some ways like the opposite of stealth technology. It's not being made in a secret defense lab. It's not technology that we can control and limit others access to. It's already the playing field globally is, is really level, much more level than we would like. Um, so we would like a world where we have a lead on the basic technology. And that's not very realistic today. In fact, when you look at top tier AI companies, yes, there are a number of US companies in the mix, uh, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, all top AI companies, but also in that mix are Chinese firms, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, SenseTime, iFlyTech, all global AI leaders. And so our adversaries, our competitors, they're gonna have access to the technology too. If we're going to stay ahead in this military competition, it's gonna be an implementation. It's gonna be in finding ways to take this technology and use it. I'll make a comparison here uh, to the industrial revolution. A lot of people have compared AI to another industrial revolution. When we look at technologies that came out of the industrial revolution, having a slight edge uh, in the actual basic technology isn't what mattered. You look at what the Germans were able to do with the, the Blitzkrieg, they didn't have you know, unique capability with the internal combustion engine. Everyone else had access to the same technology. They found ways to put it together to battlefield effects that were uh, more significant and transformative. And that's when we need to focus our attention on AI. How do we create an iterative process, prototyping, experimentation, concept development, to make sure that we're using the technology better than competitors. All right, so to that end, you write in this piece, the most important step defense leaders could take in the near term would be to implement the necessary intro, uh, internal processes to ensure adequate test evaluation, validation, and verification of AI systems. It sounds like what you're suggesting there is get the fundamentals right, lay the foundation right, and then build those capabilities that you just described on top of that. Am I interpreting it correctly, Paul? That's exactly right. And, and you know, one of the real challenges with AI um, and machine learning in particular, we see this huge explosion 
over the last decade in deep learning, a particular type of machine learning, which is a, a particular method for creating intelligent systems, is it can be very powerful. It could do some really amazing things. Um, we've seen AI systems using machine learning achieve superhuman performance in games like Go. Um, we've also seen machine learning beat human performance at benchmark uh, tests in things like image recognition. So there's a lot of value here the DOD is employing it for things like predictive maintenance, processing images, um, doing natural language processing of, of DOD documents. That's incredibly valuable. The technology is also very brittle. So one of the problems with AI is when you are training this machine learning system, it's very good for circumstances that you've trained it against. But if the, if the environment that you're using it in, is just ever so slightly different than the training data, its performance can fall off very dramatically. Um, and in fact, DOD leaders have talked about this in the context of, for example, Project Maven, where once they originally built this image classification algorithm and they took it out into the real world, out into the, into the Middle East, into an operational environment, its performance dropped off and they needed some tweaks, needed some modifications, some updating based on the environment. So we need to make sure that when we put these tools in the hands of warfighters, we're putting in tools that are trustworthy, that are actually going to work the way that they uh, are intended to work, and that people are going to get, warfighters are going to get the same reliability out of these AI systems that they've come to expect out of other types of technologies that we're putting into their hands. Paul Shari, thanks very much. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Paul's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too. You get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. Just go on the website, enter your email in the red box. I'm back in two minutes. North America's largest maritime expo and conference is back in person. The Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 is August 2nd through 4th at Gaylord National Harbor. You'll see speakers from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Maritime Administration, and Congress. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because 
the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.